0: Good evening everyone. Uh, We're reading Job chapter 38 and this is a part of Job where having had a discourse with three of his friends who have all sought to explain why it is that the tragedies that he's experienced have befallen him. uh, Another friend, Elihu, has had his view expressed as well and God cuts through it all and speaks directly to Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who had laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the, from the womb? When I made the clouds in gar- its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and stars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud, your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? That it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me, if you know all this.
1: Our second reading is from the book of Romans and it's chapter 8, verse, hang on, I'll get it, verse 18 to 27 and it's found on page 800. I'll just wait while you find it. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will, will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and... And brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. I can't see, sorry. I have to go a bit closer. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what, is or what he already has? But if we, hope for what we do not, if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself Intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will.
2: Good to see you. This is actually a really um, hard sermon to preach when you're tackling a topic like, uh, where is God in natural disasters? Uh, But we've got to grapple with it. We need answers for ourselves, and we need answers to share with those that we know and love as well. Hard sermon to prepare, hard sermon to preach, but I do hope that as you've watched the natural disasters, or as the insurance companies call them, the acts of God, over the last few months, years, that you've actually been asking those questions yourself. You know, where is God? Does God care? Can God help? Why doesn't God do something? Let me just take you uh, through a few of the facts, if you want. Haiti. That was January 2010 when a 7.0 earthquake struck Port-au-Prince. The deaths were horrific, 220,000 estimated dead, 1.5 million homeless, and they're just the facts that we know, not to mention the, the disease and the cholera and the diarrhea that's taken many, many more lives since then. And when you hear those facts, you've got to ask where is God and does God care? I remember watching the news flash on Boxing Day 2004. Do you remember that? Waves up to 30 metres high, travelling at speeds up to 800 kilometres per hour. That massive wall of water, that massive scale of damage and destruction almost a quarter of a million people died in some countries they stopped counting the bodies there were just too many of them and surely when you hear that you've got to say where was God then why didn't God do something let's be closer to home Black Saturday February 2009 Temperatures soared to about 46.4 degrees. The, the winds blew at about 100 kilometers per hour. And nothing could stop that path. Let's bring it a bit to this year, 11th of January, 2011. And maybe like me, you spent years praying and praying and praying for rain. And we got rain. Just too much rain, all at one time, too heavy. And so Brisbane and Queensland, deluged by those floodwaters, 35 lives lost, uh, 20,000 people homeless. I'm going to skip over Cyclone Yassi. Let's go to the 4th of March this year. Japan, a 9.0 earthquake. The death toll is predicted to exceed 30,000. And surely, as you watch those pictures, you said, Where is God? Does God care? Finally, let's go to Christchurch. Christchurch, New Zealand. Imagine that you're sitting at your desk at lunchtime in the CBD like you always do, and then suddenly quite a small earthquake, 6.3. But the damage is just massive. Buildings are are just pancaked. And surely, as you look at those facts and figures, you do ask, Where is God? Does God see? Does God care? Can God help? But let me just say, what I've just given you are, are just facts and just figures. The reality is that through these so-called natural disasters, real people lost real loved ones. I read this letter from a friend of mine who's a minister in Christchurch, New Zealand. He said, the damage is widespread. CBD is more or less destroyed. But everything for us is relativized by the loss of Julie. The police came to David two days ago to confirm they'd identified the body, and he had the job of telling their four year old son Ethan. David write this. David wrote this email a few days ago to me. I told Ethan a few days ago that I didn't think that they were going to be able to find mummy. And I believe that she's in Jesus' care now, that with Jesus she'll be safe and happy, but that we can't see her anymore, And and it would be very sad for us, that I would love him as best I could, and our friends would love him as best they could. As for me, a few days ago I got passed on a message that stuck in my mind. Richard abuse of all souls, who, who lost his wife to cancer, said, My emotions are all over the place, but my doctrine is intact. I don't know if I can hold to all of that, but it resonates with me. At times I feel like shouting, but despite all this, I haven't felt the anger towards God that I feared I would. I don't currently feel any bitterness. I do still believe in God and trust that he has Julie, Ethan, and I in his care, albeit now in different ways. It makes sense to me that if God is sovereign, then Julie's death was not random, and I do find that comforting. It means there's no reason, so it means there's a reason, albeit one I don't understand, and therefore there's a meaning. It also makes sense to me that if God is loving, which he is, then Julie will be in good care now. And while I might be in a lot of pain, along with Ethan and everyone who cared about Julie, we are also still in good hands of a loving God. And the reason I share that with you is when you talk about natural disasters, you're not just talking about the pictures you see on TV. You're talking about real people, who have lost real loved ones. And the problem with preaching on a topic like this is that we sit here in the comforts of Kiribati and we do this armchair pondering of the theology of natural disaster or the theology of suffering. But at some point in your life and at some point in my life, those armchair discussions will be reality for us. And what I'm going to do tonight is try and give you a framework to deal with suffering as a whole that will help you understand both natural disasters but also the suffering that you might go through personally. Does that make sense? Please don't trivialize this. Please don't just theologize this. Think about yourself. Think about real people who you know and love. I think when you come to a topic like natural disasters, People fall into one of two camps uh, they go to two extremes either their God becomes this this monster who sits up in heaven and causes all these things and just and just is bringing death and carnage and he's killing all these people for no reason or at the other extreme you've got this impotent powerless God who's just not able to do anything about it. I want to say there's this path in between. He, he's, he's not a vindictive monster. He's not a pathetic, impotent God. This is the God that we know and we love and we trust. I've got four things about him. God is in sovereign control in all situations. God is in sovereign control in all situations situations and that is the most comforting doctrine that you can grasp hold of. God is is totally sovereign. Nothing happens in this universe without God's permission. Now think about that statement. What I'm saying is that Hurricane Yassi could not blow without God's permission. The bushfires cannot blaze without God's permission. Tsunamis cannot obliterate whole villages without God's permission. And buildings don't just randomly fall on people without God's permission. God is on his throne. God is sovereign. And believe it or not, that is actually really comforting. Do you remember the book of Job? Job is not a book about suffering. It's a book about God's sovereignty. You've got a man, Job, who was upright, who was godly, and then this calamity struck him, utter, utter calamity. Through the tornadoes, through the bushfires, he lost his oxen, he lost his cattle, he lost his servants, seven sons, three daughters, all killed. And as Job sat there in the ashes, weeping and mourning, more calamity struck as God brought boils and sores to his body. But Job understood this because he cried out these amazing words. The Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Amen. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? The Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. See, he doesn't say, The Lord gives and Mother Nature has taken away. He doesn't say the Lord gives, and Satan has taken away. It's not the good thing comes from God, but trouble or hardship comes from Satan, or is outside of God's control. As you read the book of Job, very clear in chapter 1, that God is always in control. Yes, he gives permission. He gives permission for Satan to wander the earth, and he gives permission for these things to happen. But nothing happens unless God permits it. He never loses control or abdicates any power. And, you know, I have to say, sometimes the permission that God gives is utterly, utterly terrible. The permission that God gives, sometimes you're scratching your head and you're screaming, why, why, why? I don't like what's happening. I don't, I don't understand what's happening. But I'm not going to slip into this nice, neat, trite theology that says, oh, God's not involved in that. I think of a woman who sat in my office about six days after her husband had died. And amidst the tears, she said something like, God knows exactly what's happening. He's in total control of this. I'm grieving, I'm hurting, I'm sad, I'm crying. I'm crying, why, why, why? But I trust He's sovereign. I know he's sovereign. This is not a solution to natural disasters. We're still going to ask why. Why did God give permission for that earthquake and that tsunami? But you've got to believe that God is totally sovereign. What Job says in Job 42, they comforted and consoled him over all the troubles the Lord had brought upon him. See, See, nature does not have a will of its own. Did God know the tsunami was going to happen? Absolutely. Could God have stopped it from happening? Absolutely. Listen to these verses. Psalm 89, O Lord, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Psalm 147, He spreads the snow like wool and scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? I need to ask you right up front, do you really believe that every single situation is under the control in the hands of an almighty God? The God who made rain and made water and made fire and made sunshine is in control of all those things even today. Because if you claim that your God knows the hairs on your head, and if you claim that your God knows when a sparrow falls from the, from the sky, you cannot Suddenly, uh, say, uh, well, I'll just try and explain away these natural disasters without God's sovereignty. If you're a faithful Bible-believing Christian, you've got to say God was more than just a a bystander. He was powerless to stop it. You've got to understand that truth for any tragedy that you might face. Let me say very politely, you've got wonky theology (laughs) If you're if you're going to say God is God's hand is on the good things, but not on the bad things. Try and say to someone, "Oh, God, God God didn't mean for your husband to get cancer. God didn't mean you to lose that job. God didn't mean for that wave to blow, and God didn't mean for that building to fall." As though, poor God, doesn't quite have the power to change those things. If that is your God, there's no security and there's no comfort. I'm not claiming that it answers the, the why did it happen. But I am saying behind it all is, is the God who's given permission for it to happen. So why didn't he stop it? Here's my second point. God's ways are sometimes Mysterious. What was the purpose of the tsunami? Why did the floods happen? What was the point of the earthquake? What has God been trying to achieve in his world over the last couple of years? They're the kind of questions we we want answered. And the Bible, I think, is frustratingly silent. But it's refreshingly blunt. Uh, uh, God says to Job, You're not God. You don't know why this is happening. There may be a thousand different purposes for what's happening, but most of them will remain hidden for us. It's really Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And the answer is no one you are not God, I am not God, we don't see everything, we don't know everything and we have no right to stand in judgment over him. No one has the right to claim that they know why a particular disaster happened at a particular time and particular place. Please don't try. I've read websites where they've tried to do that. Blame the earthquake in Haiti on the voodoo culture of that country. Blame the Japanese tsunami on God hating nuclear power. That is offensive. Outrageous. The problem with, with all this whole topic is that we like to presume that we know exactly what God is doing and what God should do. And that is why I love Job 38 41. Just flick to it, it's on page 380. God does not tell Job why the disasters happened to him, but he reminds Job that he is not God. And Job, there are some things that are beyond your comprehension. So he says in chapter 38, verse 4, Job, were you there when I formed the earth? Tell me if you understand. He says down to, down to verse 8, he says, Job, look at the sea. Who shut up the sea behind the doors? Job, did you you set the limits on the sea? Did you decide what would be land and what would be sea? Were you there, Job? Verse 12, look at the sun. Have you ever given orders to the morning? Saying, come on, sun, up you get. Uh, Look at the depth and breadth of the earth. In verse 16, Job, have you gone right round the earth? Have you gone to the furthest parts of the earth? Do you understand how this earth keeps spinning? And yet you're arrogant enough to tell me, God, how to run my earth. What he's saying in this chapter is day by day, hour by hour God is controlling his earth and yet we presume to tell God what he should be doing. God says to Job Job if you are God I'll happily leave the running of my world to you. But you're not. So what makes you think that you can tell me how to run my world better than me? It's kind of like God says to Job, Okay, Job, do, do you know about that baby that's been born in Africa right now? Do you have any idea about that woman who is just bearing her husband in Brazil right now? Do you, do you hold in the palm of your hand uh, that couple who have just got married and celebrating the joys of life? Do do, do you know everything that's happening? Do do you juggle 10 billion balls in your hand at the same time? No, of course you don't. But I do, because I'm God and you're not. And I think that's a problem with this whole topic. Because this truth that God is sovereign and his ways are mysterious is really very humbling. There are some things in your life and in my life that I will never get the answer to. Why did this happen? And sometimes we need to learn a difficult lesson, which is that humbling silence. We need to learn to say less, to ask less questions, and to trust God more. It's the same with the earthquakes, isn't it? You know, We know that actually the, the earth needs earthquakes to keep on spinning at the right speed. Those plates do need to shift. We trust in that every day. It's just when they shift a bit too much that we start to question and shout and complain. Now, this truth that that God's ways are mysterious, it is humbling. So, so, So why didn't God bring an earthquake to Sydney where we have better infrastructure than Haiti? Why did God bring the earthquake at lunchtime in Christchurch when people are in their offices rather than after work? Why did did God flatten so many churches? Why didn't he protect his people? Why did so many Christians die in Haiti? More Christians than than unbelievers die in Haiti. Why didn't God protect those people? And the answer is, I really don't know. And let me just give you another word here. I'm begging you here, please, please, please don't start to quote Romans 8.28 at me. You know, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. That is true. I believe that. I believe God works in all situations to bring good. But please do not start to speculate what that good could be. You know, yeah, we hear remarkable stories of, of sacrifice and survival. We hear remarkable stories of of perfect strangers risking their own lives to save others. And we've seen communities united like never before and this outpouring of prayer and outpouring of concern. And all those things are good. But please don't start to speculate exactly how God is going to use these things for good in each situation. Because we're presuming that we know God's mind there. God's ways are sometimes mysterious. Let me say this lesson is a lesson I've had to learn as a pastor. I made so many mistakes in my early years of ministry. You know, as, you, as you go to the hospital and sit with the couple whose son has just suicided, as you go to the graveside to do a funeral of somebody bearing a child, people at those situations do not want the answers. They want your comfort. They want your presence. And when you start to say to them, oh, God is probably doing this, and guessing what God is doing through it, that is arrogant and that is proud, the humbling thing to say is, it grieves me. I'm weeping with you. I don't know why God is doing this. His ways are um, far greater than mine. It's okay to say that, isn't it? It's okay to say, I, I don't know why a quarter of a million people lost their lives. I'm not God. Could God have present, prevented it? Yes, he is sovereign. Why didn't he? I, I don't know. He's mysterious. The third thing is, is every natural disaster a kind of punishment from God? And the answer is no, of course it's not. The doctrine of suffering is complex, not simple. The Bible will not allow you to have this very simplistic view of suffering, that nice, neat, simple equation between sin and suffering. That, that was Job's comforter's problems. They tried to say, you're suffering because you sinned, or if you're suffering, you must have sinned. And that kind of wonky theology, you know, if Japan is suffering, it must be a punishment for them as a nation, or if Haiti is suffering, it must be a punishment for them. That is not biblical Suffering is not that neat. Now, let me say, sure, some suffering, or all of suffering in some way is a result of human rebellion against God in some way. If there was no sin in the world, there'd be no suffering. But you cannot say that this disaster is a result of God's judgment for this sin of this people. Does that make sense? You can't make that nice, neat equation. Again, God makes that very clear in the book of Job. Job is an upright man, a godly man. He's not perfect, but he's not being punished. He's being purified. I want to make that very clear. If you're suffering here now, today, if you suffer in the future, even if you suffer a natural disaster, it's not necessarily directly linked to a particular sin. It, It might be. You might be suffering the consequences of your selfishness, your pride, your materialism. It might be that, but suffering is not that simple. You know, these natural disasters, they might be God's refining of a certain country. They might be that. But we have no right to make that kind of call. Do you remember the calamity that Jesus talks about in Luke 13? The Tower of Siloam. Uh, Those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Jesus is just saying that those people were no worse than you. They're not being punished for some specific sins. In fact, it's just amazing that the tower didn't fall on you. And isn't that in some way what these natural disasters do for us? They force us to, to recognize that we are vulnerable and we are broken. And I do hope that you watch those floods and somewhere in the back of your mind was saying, there but for the grace of God go I. Thank you, God, that you haven't brought this flood to Sydney and thank you you haven't brought an earthquake to Sydney. Listen to what Spurgeon has to say. As I looked for a moment upon the poor mangled bodies of those who had been so suddenly slain, my eyes find tears but my heart heart does not boast, nor my lips accuse. Far from me be the boastful cry, God, I thank thee that I am not as these men are. Nay, 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 it is not the spirit of Christ. We thank God that we are preserved. We say it is of thy mercy that we are not consumed. And we ascribe that to his grace and his grace alone. But we cannot suppose that there are any betterness in us why should we be kept alive with death so near? All I'm just saying is that when you come to a topic like suffering, why do those Japanese suffer? Why do New Zealand suffer? Why does the uh, Haitian suffer? We, we don't know. It's not simple answers. The other thing I've been, been pondering this week is, how would other worldviews answer this question? So what would the atheists say to David and his son Ethan? What would the Buddhists say to David and his son Ethan? what hope do they give Here's what burton russell said to the atheist he said no one can believe in a good god if they've sat at the bedside of a dying child but his his explanation for that dying child he says brief and powerless is man's life man's achievements must inev- inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a, of a universe in ruins now, i don't find that particularly comforting just to be told that there's no purpose to my suffering the Bible says there's always purpose to suffering. It might be refining you, it might be building your character, it might be forcing you to say, I'm not in control, but God is. It might be forcing me to to draw closer to God, to repent, to believe. God always uses suffering, we just don't know exactly how he's going to use it. This brings my fourth point. Please be realistic that our creation is groaning. That's Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 18, it says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. This is the key verse, verse 20. For creation was subjected to frustration or emptiness or futility. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Now, who is it that subjected the creation to this frustration and this groaning and this emptiness? It's God himself. Verse 21, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated, will be freed from its bondage to decay, and be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. What it's saying here is that that God has subjected his creation to some kind of frustration and futility. Now, when did that happen? way back at the fall. Everything was good before the fall but tsunamis are not good. You see, we can't deal with this whole topic of natural disasters without recognizing that we live in a broken world, a groaning world, a world full of sin. This world, this creation is not perfect anymore. We also can't deal with this topic without recognizing that some of the, I say some of the fatalities in these natural disasters have been caused by human sin. The arson that started those bushfires back in Victoria. The sin of greed that built more and more houses on fault lines just to get a better view. The sin of pride that ignored the tsunami warnings the sin of selfishness that did not stop to rescue that person in need. But put all that aside, Romans 8 is still very clear that creation is in the pains of what, verse 22? The pains of childbirth. We are waiting, we are about to give birth to the new heavens and the new earth where there's no pain and no suffering and no sickness and no tsunamis. And isn't that what these disasters do for you? Don't you watch them and, and think of Matthew 24 and think, that's right, Uh, the, the, the return of Jesus, there'll be earthquakes and there'll be wars and there'll be rumors of wars. Don't you sit there and just say, come Lord Jesus, please. I don't think we do because we're just so far removed from them. But you will cry, come Lord Jesus, when your own personal mini tsunami hits you. Believe me, you might not be wiped out by a 30 foot wave, but you might be wiped out by the death of a loved one, or by loneliness, or by depression, or something that just just whacks you and says, Come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. And I hope that's what these natural disasters do for you. They they lift your eyes onto Jesus, onto the new heavens and the new earth, not just this earth. Where is God? He is sovereign. He's in control. Why doesn't he stop it? I don't know. His ways are sometimes mysterious. Is that suffering linked to sin? No way. Suffering is such a complex doctrine. It's not simple. But this world is groaning. So how should you respond? Let me give you two C's to respond. With compassion and with confidence. With compassion, please learn to call a disaster a disaster. I, in many ways, I hate the fact we're talking about this tonight. Stop theologizing and just start Weeping. Do what Romans 12 tells you to do. Weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. And we should be sitting watching our TVs with with the tears flowing. We should feel compassion for those who suffer. I reckon that's one of the lessons that Job's comforters learned. To speak less and to weep more. To discuss and to debate and to theologize less. And just have real compassion. And that is a lesson I've learned in life's many tsunamis. People want empathy. People want you to sit with them and cry with them and grieve with them and mourn with them. They don't just want answers. But it's not just empathy, compassion is more than just you sitting at home weeping, it, you, you should be giving. You should be offering practical care and practical support. A Christians, the a church, should be the first to give, not the last. Galatians 6 says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to, to all people. If there was ever a time where we had the opportunity to do good, isn't it now? Shouldn't the church be the one sending in the teams to the cleanups? The church being the one sending all the aid overseas? And In many ways, we've lost it our way and we've been put to shame by other organizations. I'm so convinced on this that Christians in the church should be leading the way on this. one well, not governments, but the church. Have compassion on those whose lives have been utterly, utterly devastated. But please have confidence. Don't blame God. Pray to him. Don't run away from God, run to him. There are six billion people in this world who desperately, desperately need to hear the hope of the gospel. They desperately need to hear about the compassion and the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe, just maybe, God is awakening in you this this, this confidence and this trust that, that God is far, far, far bigger than you've ever given him credit for. And maybe he's reminding you that you've got loved ones. You've got loved ones who, if they were caught up in those disasters, they would not be with Christ. Whatever ask you any question, whatever emotional reaction you have, please never, never doubt God's love, God's goodness, God's mercy, God's grace because you cannot pretend to know why God is doing this and how he's going to use it. Where is God? In control? Absolutely. Why didn't he prevent it? I have no idea why. Will he use it for good? Absolutely. But I don't know exactly how. All I can do is show compassion, trust him, and pray. Let me do that now. I want to pray, come Lord Jesus, please come Lord Jesus, please bring to an end to all the, the groaning of your creation, please liberate us from this bondage to decay. Father, you know those around our world who are hurting so badly. those who have lost loved ones. I do pray for David and Ethan tonight. And I ask, Lord, that you would be their comfort and their rock. And I pray, Lord, for those who are living with the after effects of these disasters, those who are homeless, those who are hungry, those who have no clean water, those who are fighting disease. Lord, please stir in our hearts in this place in this room tonight compassion, Lord, may we do whatever we can to to give to change situations to offer just material and practical care, and please raise up your sons and daughters in those places to. To preach the gospel of hope, to preach the gospel of love and grace and mercy. Lord, your ways are unfathomable and unsearchable. But we do trust you that you're sovereign and you're good. In Jesus' name. Amen.